Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and we're in Reno, Nevada for the Wild West Vet Show, where we're sitting down with some of our session speakers to get the inside track and learn all the tips and tricks that you can put into practice immediately. And our next guest that I'm so excited to have this conversation with is Dr. Narda Robinson. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me here. I am very excited to have you. We're talking about three lectures that you're out here doing on acupuncture, botanicals, and massage for pain management. But before we get into all that, I, I want to just ask you a little bit about your background. Tell me sure. a little bit about where you came from, how you got here, and, and what you're up to. Yeah, well, um, I grew up in Boston and went to um, Harvard undergraduate, but then thought that I wanted to be a veterinarian and actually talked to the guidance people at Harvard, and that person dissuaded me, and he, he didn't think it was a good idea for a number of reasons. So I went to medical school first and still always wanted to be a veterinarian. So I was out in practice for three years as an osteopathic physician, and then I just wandered up to CSU and applied and got in because I just really wanted to work with animals. And as soon as I was accepted, I started enjoying my human practice more. So what I was doing in human medicine is what I am speaking about now with veterinary medicine. So being an osteopathic physician in school, we learn medical manipulation or osteopathic manipulation. So we work with our hands and place a lot of emphasis on the intrinsic healing mechanisms of the body and how to support those. So already I had a non-drug, non-surgical option for my patients, and that's often what they came to see me for. Uh, but I just, I loved what I was doing. I just wanted to work with animals. So I went up to CSU, and in my third year up there, and when we started to work down in the clinic at the veterinary teaching hospital, I could see that there were so many animals that were in pain and had dysfunction, and all they had as options were drugs and surgery. Yeah. So I actually had a number of patients from the faculty and administration in my human practice that I was doing while I was a vet student. So I proposed that we start an acupuncture service for animals at the vet teaching hospital at CSU. And this was when I was a third year student. So I wasn't licensed in veterinary medicine, but we'd have the clinicians in charge of the patients sign off on my records. Sure. So I actually started the acupuncture service in 1996. And then I started the acupuncture course that I still teach in 98, and then we've added massage and botanicals and everything. And it was interesting that when I first started to explore what was available in veterinary holistic medicine, I mean, I thought, oh, look, homeopathy, oh, how wonderful, and this, that, and the other thing. And then as I had become more, much more scientific over the ensuing years after graduation and seeing that homeopathy was largely placebo-based medicine, and then recognizing the strictly scientific approach to acupuncture, I generated a lot of enemies actually in the holistic field because they were all nicely nested in their belief systems. And I was disturbing that, but I felt especially, number one, that I wanted to speak the truth and from an intellectually honest perspective, the more I studied and researched and saw what did and didn't have a rational basis, evidence of effectiveness, evidence of safety. So I also felt that I owed CSU, you know, that level of honesty. And it was such an honor to teach there, and which I did for the next 20 years. Uh, but I didn't want to mislead anybody. And so the more I was finding out in about 2002, I just came to the point where 
I am not going to teach acupuncture as energy moving anymore. Because I, I was fortunate to have two mentors from outside of the university really insist that acupuncture was about working with the nervous system, a word that we use now is neuromodulation. And I fought them at first. And uh, it's, I think it's like an ex-smoker where maybe you fight it at first and then you hate the smell of cigarette yeah. after you get up. But um, yeah, because I was wedded to the belief that I was doing something somewhat mystical. And, and I didn't have that critical perspective. It, it wasn't really actually encouraged enough in school, I think. But once, once I recognized that I could not defend that there was invisible energy moving through the body and that we were removing dampness in the spleen and just all the belief systems that came with learning acupuncture, once that just fell apart for me, there was turbulence and there still is to some extent, but, but now after 20-something years, people come to our course and say, I'm just not into any of that chi, you know, liver, wind, all that stuff that I don't want that at all. So we get a strong following that is like me, but there are still people that are forever searching for a guru yeah, and just want something magical to do. And I just think our best way to practice medicine is from a rational scientific perspective. If you want to do something quasi-religious, that's fine, but don't do that in the context of medical care. So I think that's such an important point because I think when people see what you do, they hear what you do with the knowledge they oh, botanicals, all, you know, essential oils and all of this hoodoo, hoodoo type stuff, and, and there's no sign. And you're saying, I love the skeptics. You came in to me when we were talking mm -hmm. before we started recording, you said, I love the skeptics because I work within science. Yeah, and I can defend myself, and, and I love for them to raise their hand. There's too few of them, number one, but when they do and, and they raise their hand, I can answer them. And it shines a light on the inadequacy of both veterinary and human medical education, because I teach in both fields. But we have been, as a profession or both professions, so conditioned, if dare I say brainwashed, by corporatized, pharmaceutical-supported, industrial, you know, medicine that we grow up with, whether we're techs in the field or, or whatever we do, and then we go to vet med. It's like, that's all we see. And so then it becomes more and more foreign. It's artificial though, like pharmaceuticals only really started in the 1900s. There was a bunch of healing before then. Right. And then when you get into the science, if I have the occasion to debate a skeptic, I love talking to them about neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, and all the evidence for acupuncture, because they know none of it. So it, there's a lot of laziness, again, around everywhere, and people not looking beneath the surface for what's, what are the facts, and just going with sound bites. But it's, it's more comfortable for people either to, when they're a skeptic, say, oh, it's just a placebo. And you ask them, well, why do you think that? They really only have talking points, and once you get into the research and the design, they, they just want to go elsewhere because they yeah. don't want to work hard and think about, you know, we're just doing nerve stimulation. You can do that with electricity. You can, it's, it's simply nerve stimulation, neuroanatomy. So aside from those people, it's so much fun to study these subjects that from the first year of veterinary school, you know, it's like, oh, I've got to memorize all these muscles. Oh, I've got to memorize this physiology and the nervous system. How wonderful it would be to learn 
in conjunction with anatomy. Like here are acupuncture points. This myotendinous junction is an acupuncture point, and here's why. And here's the physiology of those Golgi tendon organs, the muscle spindles. Here's why it all makes sense and why you need to know it rather than just rote memorization. So it would really transform medical and veterinary education to put integrative subjects side by side, which is which is my next project. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. <laughs> I want to see that unfold because you're yeah. you're exactly right. You're exactly yeah. right. There are there are, this is a whole comprehensive therapy, right? And it is science based and I think it it's it's fascinating. And in your lectures, the first thing you say, the first point you make about the medical credo, right? First do no harm, the consideration of non surgical, you know, science based integrative options for pain, regardless of the source of that option, is essential. And we have to keep Keep it in the forefront of our mind, right? Mm -hmm. So this next endeavor you're going off on, I mean, I think this is where veterinary professionals need to start to look and say, this isn't about mystic, this is about science, and right. it should be incorporated in everything I'm doing. Any, any patient right. that's in pain, right? First line care, right. Because when you start doing that, you can see, oh, here's, especially with the myofascial palpation, here's where this animal is tight. Or like, where is the pain? Why is it there? What's the nature of it? Is it musculoskeletal, neuropathic, inflammatory? So even just talking about pain, there is such an insufficiency of recognition and understanding and ability to determine where it is and what you're going to do about it. And especially now we see this fulminant opioid overdose epidemic right. in yes. human medicine. And then, then that permeates down to veterinary medicine too with drug diversion, yes. people injuring their animals or whatever it is to get these drugs. You don't need to have that. And so there's just being a better doctor and there's getting a real diagnosis rather than trying to watch somebody you know you see the animal on the table do you how much do you even touch them yeah. and so the diagnosis needs a lot more improvement this is just these are just medical basics and then there's the problem that we're all recognizing of veterinarian suicide even in texas as well depression burnout all that and so when i look at that because i care about the people that come to learn from me to, I mean, they're veterinarians and, and techs. They're wonderful, good-hearted people. Yeah. And why are we so sad and upset and just done with it all? And I know that I would be back in human medicine if I had to do general practice. I would not survive in that. And so, really, I know my, you know, like emotional makeup, my sensitivity to animals and, and the people and everything. And it's like, this is where I can exist. If I'm going to be a vet because I wanted to be one, then how can I thrive in this circumstance? So I knew early on what I needed to do. But what we find is that when people come and learn these science-based integrated medicine approaches, either they're already burnt out or they, a lot of them are, even if yeah. they're out of school, and they're looking for something else. And it's just, just last week we ran a, a course and, and people would say, this is life-changing. Yes. And it really is. And so when you look at the factors related to veterinarian suicide, a lot of it relates back to what we're doing. We're antagonistic to clients and sad about animals. It's like so many of those 10 factors that lead to someone taking their own life are things that you don't need to put up with. You, yeah. And whether that's corporate medicine or something else, you can change your life and yeah. be happy. Yeah, yeah, and it's stuff like this. And, it, and it's finding other alternative therapies to be doing better medicine. So many of mm -hmm. us are like that imposter syndrome, and it's like, am I doing the best that I can? Am I doing the best I can right. for my patients? And you're saying, I don't know if you are or not, but here is definitely something that you can be doing. And I guess to that point, for our practitioners out there, when we talk about this, we use the word integrative, right? We use complementary and therapies. We use all of those words together. 
Is it just that? Is it always like an adjunctive therapy where it's complementary with something else or is it sometimes primary? Oh, definitely sometimes primary. Yeah. And and that's where, again, uh, standards of care need to change, and we will upgrade them, or we are upgrading them. That is how many people are in a given area. But, for example, with spinal cord injury and disc disease, when somebody comes, especially I've, I've had arguments in some of my talks um, with surgeons from, on various things, but, again, with the brainwashing, to think that surgery, going cutting into the back, into the muscles and through the bone to remove a teeny tiny disc fragment that after which the animal may never walk again or may need another surgery. To think that that's the gold standard is misguided. Okay. And then just even, and that, uh, uh, that's where I would love to debate any of the naysayers and, and talk about primary versus secondary pathophysiologic states after spinal cord injury because if there is something there, I mean, if it's big enough and the animal needs surgery, okay. But a lot of times we don't know. But you're doing nothing for the secondary pathophysiology, which involves changes in circulation and in inflammation. So this is what happens after that initial assault, which might just be, might not even be a dysfragment, we don't know. But where you can recover, better blood flow, anti-inflammatory effects, functional neuronal connectivity, so improving the ability of the nervous system to heal and to heal in a functionally meaningful way, which means that the animal walks again. It's such a direct contrast to do what we call a, a PRIMA approach, so pain rehab integrative medicine. To do that, and right at the outset, versus what I had seen in school quite a bit, which was erratic level of pain even attention or medication. Go in there, stick the animal in a small cage, keep them confined for weeks and weeks, which when you do that, you have an animal that can't walk, whose neurons have just grown in not a meaningful way together, where they can't have learned how to walk, if at all, in a very chaotic fashion. And with a non-weight-bearing, then their joints are deteriorating because you need weight-bearing for joints. So it's so misguided. Cage rest, cage confinement for eight weeks or whatever, and, the, and everybody's going just nuts during that time. Versus integrative medicine and rehabilitation at the outset, sanely, and not injuring the animal, but having assisted stand. I mean, like in the old days when people would have back pain, baby disc disease, then they would They'd be in bed rest. We knew 15, 20 years ago that wasn't the way to go. So they're up and about, and because exercise has its own recuperative you know, powers. So there's a real paradigm shift going on in veterinary medicine where you have sort of the old guard and then the new people. But we still have a lot further to go, and that means getting into schools and teaching integrated medicine from day one. Yeah, and, and so your point is not don't cut into the spine. It's that if you're going to do that, you have to do the whole package. You have to completely look at that patient from start to finish of that healing process, and you can't be so hyper-focused on that surgical procedure you have to do, albeit incredibly important if that's the way to go. You have to fix the damage you did, right? First, do no harm. You did harm when yeah. you went in there in effort to fix something, but you have to, you have to heal the damage damage it's done. Right. And as with cruciate, which is another thing that I champion a non-surgical approach for, you can never go back to uncut. Right. There's always going to be changes. And that's where, especially for doctrines that have been studied, once you have that second recurrence because you've destabilized the back, that's euthanasia. And people will say, I, I can't and won't put my animal through that again. Yeah. So there are already studies on electroacupuncture for animals in 
comparison to surgery. And it's a hard one to study without actually injuring animals purposefully. And even then when you do that, that's not really that chronic state of degeneration. Yeah. But it's a regular occurrence that we can get animals walking again without surgery. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, like you said, there's an emotional factor for us as in mm-hmm. the field, and there's an emotional factor for clients that like that we have to consider. And, and mm-hmm. if we can do this without, is it the most responsible way to do it? And I just think it's incredibly important. So let's talk a little bit about this introduction, because you're right, there is a paradigm shift. I think there's an awareness shift. I think more people are becoming educated in this area. How do we work this into the general practice? Where, How do you make that recommendation? So when people are coming and taking your course or saying whatever it is, I'm mm-hmm. in GP, I want to do this. How do I balance my, you know, Eastern and Western and, and be truly integrative in my practice, keeping it from a time standpoint, a financial standpoint, an emotional standpoint, this whole package. Right, right. And that's a great question. Well, the first thing that, that I would just mention is that this isn't Eastern versus Western because maybe acupuncture originated in Asia, but the way we are approaching it is neuromodulation and connective tissue, yeah. like resetting. So, so it's still all just good medicine. And it comes back to the physical exam and, and educating your clients. So from the time, if you're a small animal practitioner, that you're seeing puppies and kittens, they will start to develop myofascial restriction and, and bodily pain in certain areas on their back or wherever it is. Whether it's just rough and tumbling or whatever they're doing, they're starting to accrue tension in their back. And so if we're not examining them and we're saying, oh, cute little puppy or kitten, then that's going untreated and under-recognized. Because for example, when I'm educating people about geriatrics, I have them think, what year did they become looking like this where their back is all hunched and they're lame all over the place and everything? And when could we have intervened? So again, this is from my osteopathic roots where we want to be proactive and preventive and, and really see that timeline of disease and not just, oh, cat's got pancreatitis. How'd that happen? It's like these things don't just usually happen out of the blue or cruciate. So there are so many things that we can intervene on early. So when you're a GP and you're examining animals that you're doing a better physical examination, a complete physical examination, and being able to talk to the person, oh, do you see this? You can show them. Can you feel this? Can you feel this warmth? Whatever. This this is what I'm finding. If we can treat this now with acupuncture, laser massage, whatever, usually a nice combination is better. Um, then we will restore things back to normal, or if they're not interested in that, or they come in down the line, um, that it's one of the many options that we can give them. And even with spinal cord injury, cruciate, whatever it is, what I recommend to my students is that just be transparent and give the whole spectrum of treatments that you can do. What are the risks and benefits of surgery, medication, acupuncture, massage, laser therapy. Is there some kind of emergency here? Because there never is with cruciate. Although you'll have surgeons that want to cut before it gets better on its own is my opinion. Okay. But there's no emergency to get a TPLO. And again, I'm probably the most critical of TPLO of anybody on the planet. But that's that's another thing. <laughs> well, and that's okay, right? That's yeah. okay. It's okay to have differences of opinion. It's okay to have different views. Anybody out there who's like says, "Oh, you're absolutely crazy," and there's no possible way. Well, you're so set in your ways, you're not even willing to be open-minded enough to do better medicine, right? So, I think it's okay to say you're the critic of X, Y, and Z. You're mm-hmm. not saying I don't believe in it. You're not saying there's zero re- reason to do it, right? But you're saying, is there? Are we trying other things first? And how are we looking at the whole patient and the whole situation? Which I think is important. And you said something else that I think is important 
important too that I want to ask you a little bit better about, which is managing client expectations. We have clients come in who want these types of complementary therapies mm -hmm. who come in and say, you know, I, hey, I get acupuncture or I have a massage therapist and I've read about this. I want my pet to have this therapy. But again, I think you're right on the on not just from the professional standpoint, but from the general public, there is a mystic element that they're kind of expecting this magic outcome. So how do you manage their expectations? You talked to it a little bit about saying here are all our options, but when it comes to complementary therapies, how do you navigate their expectations? Well, we can inform them of it. And, and usually, I mean, just over my decades of experience, there were maybe two or three people that I couldn't get along with because of their being wedded to the mysticism. Usually I can educate them. And what I find is most people really appreciate knowing the science. And, and overall, it seems like they're more standoffish when it's not scientific. Sure. So once they can understand it, once they can feel what you're feeling, and once they see that animal after treatment just come alive and start to play where they haven't played for a long time. And, and also, I mean, just so many people are financially stressed nowadays that my views on the best way forward for different conditions aside, that you hear that a large segment of the population doesn't even have $500 that they have to spend on anything before maybe they're homeless or whatever. And that all weighs on the veterinarian and makes them depressed and everything. Yes. So if we can do something that is less expensive and we can do a let's do three treatments and see how it goes, then they're not having to buy into anything really. It's just, and you can explain this is what's going on and this is what I seek to change and you can point to the evidence if they're inclined because it's not like we're just coming out of the blue. Sure. Is there ever a time complementary therapies are contraindicated? Well, it matters what therapy you're talking about and how you're doing it and who's the practitioner. So any of them, if an animal really was uncontrollable, let's say wouldn't stay still, then probably acupuncture isn't a great thing. But that being said, especially with horse work, that some of the just most violent types of horses are in a lot of pain. Yeah. And so once you can gain their trust and start to work with them, then you just determine what's right and what's not. And some people have the mistaken belief that acupuncture would be contraindicated in cancer okay. or massage or whatever. And that myth has been around for decades and I always try to dispel it. And it arises from the chi notion where, oh, there's energy in these meridians that you can't see, but if that gets into the tumor, then it's gonna make the tumor grow. And so you start these misinformed ideas piling onto other misinformed ideas. And especially in human medicine, you have a lot of complementary medicine or integrated medicine in oncology clinics. You have integrative oncology clinics that have acupuncture at the front line yeah. and, and various herbs, but your herbs you have to, I mean, like if herbs are going to interact with chemo or something like that, then you just have to, you have to be aware of it. But that's where, if you learned this from day one in vet school yeah. and you are aware of pharmacology and the possibilities of different interactions, then you can create a treatment plan that is much kinder, more effective, a lot of times more efficient, and whether or not we include drugs or surgery, I mean, that that's a, a patient-based and condition-based judgment. But it, it's just, we, we have such tunnel vision. Right. Is there a time that we aren't meeting even our own expectations with complementary therapies and we say, this isn't working, this isn't it, and we have to take it to the next level? Well, if so if you started out with an integrative medicine option and it wasn't working, then 
my first question is, what's the diagnosis and how did you reach it? Because usually in that instance, when we would, it's something that we would expect, let's say acupuncture related techniques to work on and it's not working, that's the first thing you go back to because where are you treating? It's not like dumping a bunch of chemicals in the body like with drugs. So those are more physical medicine procedures. So you have to know where the problem is or where they are. And I mean, misdiagnosis is rampant. Yeah. Like people don't know how to do a neurological exam. They don't know how to do a, a fear-free orthopedic exam. So fear-free is a, a big integrative thing. We always think about the, the best um, emotional state that we can give our patients to. Yeah, you know, and I guess, too, you're talking a little bit, I mean, and of course, that the emotional state for everyone right, is, is important, right. and it, it, it's heightened in these situations yes. where the client is stressed, and sometimes I think stress can really block us making the best decisions and doing the best medicine because we put so much pressure on ourselves to not do the best medicine to do perfect perfect mm -hmm. medicine, yeah. right? And we yeah. don't let ourselves practice and be comfortable with that a little right. bit. It kind of makes me think about, you know, and I don't want to be accusatory, but we have, like you talked about, more skeptical folks, and then we have folks who are pretty open to this. And I think a lot of times they end up in the same building. <laughs> so what mm. advice do you give mm -hmm. to maybe some of our newer practitioners or even practitioners who have been out there forever who say, I believe in this and I want to do this, but they're working with more skeptics. Um, it, you know, it sounds like you, there is a lot of science. Where do you point people? How do you help them to, I don't want to say convince, right, but to get other people in the practice on board with something they maybe feel skeptical about? Yeah, well, it's about education in, in whatever format, whether attending a course that is science-based or, I mean, I, I, I've written for various publications for decades. So, I mean, I have a lot of articles and, and things that I can point people towards. But again, it's just this lack of information about what's real and maybe cherry-picking some negative things because people, some people just want to stay in their comfortable little spay-neuter vaccines, don't bother me with anything else, and then other people are bored to tears with that kind of thing and need something. And then if you just hang around with a person that is in practice and you see the joy and the recovery and really the friendships that you build with clients, you know, it's a whole different world. Yeah, they're definitely, because you're spending a lot of time, right? To, this are. is a very time, I don't want to say time consuming, but as opposed to maybe your wellness exams where you're, you pop in and you pop out, you're spending that therapy time with the client and the patient. That's a lot of hands-on one-on-one. It is, and it might not be for everybody, but for those people that are sickened emotionally and physically by the practice of veterinary medicine, it might be that they are of the type that wants something different yeah. than that five-minute visit. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think about this as a, an asset. I'm always advocating, of course, for support staff, and I feel like a lot of these therapies are areas where support staff can shine, can help, can learn. What resources do you have for support staff? Where do you include them in this process? Well, we do have courses in herbal medicine and cannabis and laser therapy for technicians. One of the problems that I've run into with hands-on, because we used to train techs in medical massage, is getting in liability insurance for the courses. And I've looked around, I've looked at tech schools and other programs, and I think people are flying bare or something because the AVMA, Professional Liability Insurance, doesn't cover technicians. Right. And techs are usually covered in a practice by the vet. And so I just actually bought a school 
last week a building <laughs> a building for yeah instead of just renting space at a hotel for our on-site courses and um, so we're looking into and planning to apply to become a private occupational school so that we can according to Colorado law certify vet techs in animal massage and we'll be opening an equine uh, massage course as well as the canine because that's the only way I can see to do this. It's just that liability insurance. We have techs all the time that want to yeah. do more hands-on, yes. and they should. Yes. And they should be educating the public. They are the perfect interface. We also have an acupuncture, like how to be your your veterinary acupuncturist, you know, right-hand person in terms of knowing about the electrical stimulators and, and how acupuncture works so that you can talk to the client about different clinical applications and, and be there and know how to shut off the machines and know how to do some literature searches and stuff. So we do have that as well. But techs are underutilized and we'd really like to embrace this opportunity to maximize their skills and their diversity. But I, I just have to solve that insurance piece. Thank you for championing that though, sure. honestly, because we have, you know, we know that there's the burnout in our profession with technicians. Mm -hmm. We have a, like a five-year, six-year lifespan in mm -hmm. this profession and we go away and a part of it is that utilization. We don't get to do what we we want to do and we're trained to do. And people like you, veterinarians like you out there saying, hey, I recognize this, we, we lean to you. So thank you for that. Plum's Veterinary Drugs is the must-have veterinary drug resource. With Plum's Veterinary Drugs, your number one source for drug information can always be right at your fingertips, on your phone, your tablet, or your desktop, wherever you need it. To learn more and subscribe, visit PlumsVeterinaryDrugs.com. I want to talk to you all day long and never let you leave, um, <laughs> but I'm going to eventually have to. And right. so I'm going to take it to our keep it brief section now. Sure. Very little pressure here. We rarely keep it brief. Can you just kind of tell us about some of your most memorable cases? I can't help it. I want to know about some of those that you've just seen some real turnaround and those ones that you always look back to in those moments you need a little boost. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, spinal cord injury recovery is the most frequent one, and and it is life saving. So, animals that were going to be euthanized if they did not walk again. So that's just an ongoing thing. Some of the other different types of animals that I've worked on, like a desert tortoise. I believe I was a student or just recently out when I treated this one and he hadn't, he, she hadn't defecated for months. Oh. And the person in charge of zoo animal at the time said, if you can get this tortoise to poop, I'm going to S my pants. <laughs> <laughs> because he didn't believe that it could happen. And with tortoises, there's not as many points that you can get to. This was before I used laser therapy. Uh, but um, so you had to hold on and then do the needle. And I was successful. I don't think he came through with his part of the bargain. But, um, <laughs> you know, just things that, that there's nothing else to do at this point. And, but it shouldn't get to that with a lost effort. And then there was a pet bison that people had who was six weeks old at the mm -hmm. time. 
and ran into something, injured his neck, was paralyzed. So we got him up, and once he started to run into things, budding things, then it was time for him to go home. And he was all well. Very early on, too, so 20-something years ago, a downer cow that came, because I'm primarily a small animal, exotic, and human practitioner. So this was before I had trained people in equine and farm animal massage, so the, the people that were actually doing that for a living, I mean, not massage, acupuncture. So... Yeah, there was a downer cow who had got trampled by at the barn and had a compartment syndrome in the limb and couldn't get up. And so I did some acupuncture, got her up. I mean, eventually she probably ended up at the feedlot, but we were successful. And I just remember a student who saw the points that I was using to treat essentially a radial and probably brachial plexus kind of neuropraxy or neuropathy. Anyway, she said, will acupressure work? And I didn't think that much about acupressure. I'd use rather use a needle, but anyway, I, I was in the process of saying no, and she was pressing that point that I usually treated with a needle, and the cow just got right up. <laughs> so I'm always learning, and yeah. we love that. And then, um, yeah, we have some mountain lions at a wildlife facility that I coach the vet who raised them as kittens or cubs because their mother, I think, had been killed. But anyway, so she could go into their area with them. So I would have loved to because they, you know, they were really bonded, but they only trusted her. But I coached her in um, laser therapy and myofascial palpation, so that was by proxy. Different birds are, have worked for the Raptor Center, so great horned owls that couldn't walk from some kind of injury and getting their legs moving again and then seeing them release and be flying away. I'm going to cry. I know, me it's too. so beautiful. It's yeah. beautiful because you know what? It's the ones we lose that stay with us the most. And so being able to think about the ones we didn't oh, yeah. lose because of the work that you did, yeah. it's really beautiful. Um, I, I hope that this has been as meaningful to everyone who gets the opportunity to listen. I, I think it's a beautiful thing that we can reach out to the people who weren't mm -hmm. able to be here today to hear what you're doing. Yeah. It's science. Yes, it, it makes is. sense. <laughs> And it's the best patient care, and we can be the best practitioners we can be yeah. by by adding these. I'm I, I'm going to stalk you. There will be no getting you out okay. of my life after this. Thank you so sure. much for Thank being you for here today, here. and yeah. we're, we're hearing back from you again. Great. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us, and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.